Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 4th, 2010. Man, over the weekend, my email... My email, my Facebook wall, the Twitter street. Oh, everybody wants me to chime in about the uh, Rick Warren appearance of Desiring God. And I will do that. Today's program will be dedicated to Rick Warren's appearance at Desiring God and what exactly went wrong. Yeah, hopefully at the end of this program, you'll have a, a, a better understanding of what it is that you heard. Those of you who listened to Rick Warren at the uh, Desiring God conference, what was that all about? What happened there? I mean, it was a theological train wreck, and there's a reason for that. I'll explain all of it in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. In fact, this edition of Fighting for the Faith, well, it's not going to be a, na- a normal uh, edition. It- it's not really a Friday light. Um, there's a sermon review. We're going to be listening to Rick. We're going to be reviewing in total uh, Rick Warren's uh, audio from his appearance at Desiring God. Um, but before we get to that, I, I-, I got to lay some found- uh, foundation work. You have to understand Rick Warren's theology in order to be able to understand what on earth was that was that lecture about. It was something seriously off. Yes, it was seriously off. So that's what we're going to do today. I have no idea how the timing is going to work. I don't know how we're going to do our, our, you know, pay our bills as far as our commercials are going to be concerned. In fact, we're going to start the sermon review in the first hour today, and I don't even know when we're going to start it. We're just going to just venture out at uh, in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and just get things in when, well, it's time to get them in. That's the way we're going to do it. And so uh, if, in fact, this is going to be an edition of Fighting for the Faith, you're going to want to pass along to your friends, especially your friends who are confused by the whole purpose-driven ism thing. And, uh, and they know that Rick Warren's twisting the Bible, but they can't quite figure out what, what, what is at the root of this, okay? Now, to, to the premise of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is this. Are you ready? Pastors say... What pastors say because they believe what they believe. I know this sounds like ridiculously simple, uh, but uh, in order to correctly understand what what it was that happened at the Desiring God conference there in Minneapolis on Friday night with Rick Warren's video appearance, he didn't appear in person, and uh, instead he appeared via video. In order for you to understand this. You have to get this idea firmly planted in your head. Pastors say what pastors say because they believe what they believe. That being said, 
Uh, those of you who listen to this program who are part of the Desiring God organization, I know there are some of you that are there that listen to this program, and I know you're very curious as to what what it is that I'm going to say. I need you to listen to me, and you need to do your research because you'll find out that the statement that I'm about to make is absolutely 100% true. It's correct, okay? Are you ready? Rick Warren is not a Calvinist. He's a Pelagian. Listen to me again on this. Rick Warren is not a Calvinist. He is a Pelagian. Uh, In the conversation that Dr. Piper had with Rick Warren earlier this year at that funeral that they had the mutual friend from Fuller who, uh, who died and they went to the funeral and they talked. Okay. Rick Warren fancies himself as a Calvinist. In fact, he will tell you to your face, as he said to my face directly, that he's a Kuyperian. He's a Kuyper Calvinist, okay? Abraham Kuyper. Okay, now, that being said, that's not—I don't think that's a truthful statement at all, okay? And if you think back, I don't have the audio in front of me, but in the conversation that uh, John Piper relayed to us that he had with Rick Warren, uh, Rick was so excited to talk about all the theological and doctrinal common ground that he has with John Piper, okay? And uh, and basically put forward this idea that he— that he's a Calvinist, with, and he kind of fudges a little bit here and there regarding this whole idea of, of uh, double predestination. There are certain things that he just has a, a problem with, okay? I don't exactly remember the details, okay? Um, here's the problem. <clears throat> if you listen to and study Rick Warren, which is one of the things I do, I study this man's theology, he is not a Calvinist. He denies the T in tulip. T, what's the T? Total depravity. Now, we Lutherans, now I'm not, you know, so the, <clears throat> I'm a Lutheran kind of outside of this conversation between John Piper, a Calvinist, and, and Rick Warren, who claims to be a Kuiper Calvinist. I, I, I'm an outside observer going, pay attention to the T. This is the Lutheran guy going, pay attention to the T. Warren denies the T. If you know his theology, he denies the T. And I can show you from your own systematic theology that he denies the T. And you're going, really? You've read Burkhoff? Yes, I have. I have a fine copy of Burkhoff, and I've got it marked up pretty well. I've studied Calvinism. I disagree with Calvinism on a lot of things, and I agree with Calvinism on many, 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 many things. I am a fan of Calvinism in in the sense that... I love the fact that they believe in monergism, believe in total depravity, proclaim that God is the one who raises us from the dead spiritually, and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Now, there's some other stuff. Well, we we have to continue the dialogue, if you know what I mean. But that being said, um, is it possible to be a Calvinist and deny the T? Okay. The, I think the answer is no, but then again, I'm not a Calvinist, okay? So Rick Warren says he's a Calvinist, that he's, you know, he's reformed in his thinking, but he denies the T. And he's like, how can you be so sure? Because I've studied the man's theology and I've talked to him face to face, okay? Now, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's, we're going to start this program by going backwards in time, Okay. 
Today's today it is October fourth, twenty ten. If you would go back in time with me to two thousand and eight, okay, two thousand and eight. You're going. What happened in two thousand and eight? Well, back at the end of May of two thousand and eight. Rick Warren held a big purpose-driven community conference there at Saddleback Church, and I was one of Rick Warren's personally invited guests. That's right. I did not have to pay. Rick Warren paid for me to attend the conference. I was his guest. I was there because I was a critic of Rick Warren, and the end at the end of this purpose-driven community conference, I was invited to meet with Dr. Warren and uh, and in fact, Rick Warren invited other people who were critical of him, who were bloggers and, and, and the like. And myself and Bob DeWay were the only two people who took Dr. Warren up on his invitation. But because he invited me to attend his purpose-driven community conference, I decided to attend the event in total. Okay, I was there for the whole thing. I want, and why? Because I, what do I tell you? Some theology is taught. Some theology is caught, okay? This is something I firmly believe in. It's, the reason I attend purpose-driven conferences and purpose-driven leadership conferences is the same exact reason why I attend emergent conferences. So at this particular event, I was invited by Rick Warren to, well, be his guest, and I had free reign of the place. I had, In fact, that at that conference, that was the first time I met Perry Noble face-to-face. I had a conversation with Mark Batterson face-to-face. So, you know, th- th- there were some exciting things going on at that time. <clears throat> okay, now, with all of that in mind, um, back at dur- during that week, at the, la- at the last part of May of 2008, I blogged my notes. Mm-hmm. I blogged my notes, and you need to listen to what I wrote in my notes before you listen to Rick Warren at the Desiring God conference, because when you understand what I wrote in my notes about what Rick Warren was saying about his theology and his ideas, then you will understand that Rick Warren does not believe in total depravity. He is a classic and I mean this in the truest theological, historical sense of the word. He is a classic Pelagian. He is not a Calvinist. Okay? In fact, what we heard on Friday night from Rick Warren at the Desiring God conference was classic Pelagianism and a complete and utter confusion of law and gospel to boot. Okay? So... <clears throat> Going going backwards in time. In fact, I'll put a link up to this stuff at uh, on my Facebook wall as well as on Twitter if you want to uh, um, have access to it. But uh, you can find it by going to extremetheology.com and go into the archives for May of 2008. And um, let me uh, – this is – they're a little bit um, kind of backwards, but I'm I, – no, I'll do it this way. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some things, okay? Purpose-driven community gathering day one. Here are my notes. I didn't publish my notes for every day, but this was one of the days that I did publish my notes. Let me read to you what I was uh, writing about. Um, and, and I begin partway through my notes uh, that were posted on May 23, 2008, okay? Um, just, here's what I wrote. Um, second session, uh, Rick Warren is talking about growing a spiritually mature church. 
Oddly enough, as one who watches and listens to just about everything Warren says in public, I have heard many, many, many of the things that Warren has said this morning, and I'm thankful uh, for that because I think I'd be crawling out of my skin because Warren's uh, uh, because of Warren's habit of misquoting the Bible. Uh, these are my notes. Let me continue. So next note, what is more interesting about Warren's lectures is that they have been prepared with information and counterclaims to many of the criticisms leveled against Warren and Saddleback. In a way, Warren has come out swinging. He did. Okay. Not surprisingly, Warren's reformation of deeds, not creeds, is at the core of his definition of spiritual growth. Here's his uh, quote. Here, here's his definition. Are you ready? Maturity, spiritual maturity, is relational, not intellectual. Jesus is our model of maturity. It is a myth that you can grow by attending church and listening to sermons. Warman's primary definition, uh, t- definition of behavior, therefore, is based upon behavior. Okay, this is that you got to hear what I'm saying as they unfold. So, secret number two in Warren's method of spiritual maturity: spiritual growth is intentional. We grow by making commitments, says Warren. Next note: Warren claims that if you have, if you, uh, if that you have to have a process for moving people from the commitment of come and see to the the commitment of come and die. Warren's using a really bad hermeneutic here, by the way. These are my notes. <clears throat> Next note. Uh, What are the tools that Saddleback uses to build lives of obedience? Number one, weekly commitment cards. That's right. How do you build a life of Christian obedience? Number one, commitment cards. Every sermon has to come down to two words, will you? And the commitment cards capture those commitments. Uh, Covenants, and he misquotes uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 38 through 10, verses 1 in the the Living Bible. Uh, So uh, obedience is based upon commitment cards, covenants, and message notes. Okay? Uh, let's see here. Uh, so Warren claims that we grow spiritually and mature by good habits or spiritual disciplines. Number seven, spiritual growth is multi-dimensional. Warren claims that it is a myth to believe that maturity is measured by your biblical knowledge. But then he goes on to completely misquote Titus two verse one. He quoted it from the uh, GW translation, which says, "I don't even know what GW." Tell believers to live the kind of life that goes along with accurate teaching. Here's what the verse says in a good translation, uh, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I agree with Warren that spiritually ma- spiritual maturity is not measured by biblical knowledge, but that means you can't possibly have real spiritual go- growth uh, occurring without accurate biblical teaching. Pastor Warren, will you please stop twisting God's word? <laughs> uh, just a note that I <clears throat> put in there. Um, Anyway, um, so I mean, these are those were my notes from day one. Now, day two is the more important stuff. Okay, day two are the the big notes that are important for you to get this into your head before you listen to what we're going to listen to. Okay. uh, during uh, day two, Rick Warren really spent a lot of time about talking about purpose-driven preaching. And he made this claim. Number one, God's purpose for man is to make us like Christ. The whole purpose of life is to make us like, like Christ, according to Warren. If you don't know this, then you're not ready to preach. And so you have to understand convictions, character, and conduct. So he says, sanctification means to become like Jesus. According to Warren, the problem with a lot of preaching is that it produces learners instead of doers. Okay. Number two, God's purpose for the Bible. The the purpose of the Bible is for lives to be changed. This is a direct quote from Warren. Um, it, it, the purpose of the Bible is, is for lives to be changed, uh, to challenge our character, and to change our conduct. 
Warren just said that the Bible is not a history book, but is a manual for life. Rick Warren makes the claim that the Bible is is basically a user's manual for uh, for life. Um, he says the Bible tells us how to live, and the Warren said there are far more people who know more uh, than they are doing, and therefore the purpose of preaching is to change character and to change conduct. Okay, now stop for a second. What does this mean? The entire purpose of Rick Warren's purpose-driven preaching is law. It's behavior modification and to make you obedient and like Jesus. Okay, this is a complete confusion of law and gospel. Okay, Warren said, application of the word of God is where life change takes place. Okay, um, by the way, I, at, at that point I was thinking, I said, Warren is the new John Wesley. This is the 21st century version of Methodism. Actually, it's very close to it. I'm going to answer myself here. Anyways, uh, according to Warren, he says, God's purpose for preaching is found in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 11 through 13, which he read from the NIV, which says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach uh, unity in the faith and, and in knowledge, okay? He says, There's, therefore, uh, the per- uh, God's purpose for preaching is for the pastor to be a bridge builder. Okay, There are four stages for building bridges in the pa- uh, purpose-driven preaching method. Number one, you study the text. Number two, you find the timeless truth in it. And he says, then you think of your audience, and then you apply that timeless truth to their situation. Okay. Listen again. So in order to prepare a message in the purpose-driven style, you read the text, you find the timeless truth in the text, and that has to be something that has to be something that somebody can do, okay? You think of your audience, and then you apply that timeless truth to their situation. In other words, purpose-driven preaching is all about law. It's not gospel. It's all law, okay? Now, things that are very true of every, uh, Rick Warren listed six things that are true of every audience. Number one, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants their life to count. Life is empty without Christ, and people are carrying a load of guilt. Many are consumed with bitterness and resentment, and many have a universal fear of death. Okay, those are the six things that are true of every audience. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> so. Warren, so he's defending how he's defending how-to sermons. Basically, every sermon needs to be a how-to sermons. Uh, so, and he makes the case that knowledge without application produces pride. Knowledge without application brings judgment. And uh, then he goes on to make the case that uh, you know what percentage of the Bible is all about application. So, becoming a purpose-driven pastor, the goal of purpose-driven driven preaching is not instruction. He says the goal of purpose-driven preaching is obedience. The result of purpose-driven preaching is a disciple, not a listener. And he said, <laughs> so he says you always, always, always have to preach for a, a response, a response in obedience. Okay. So um, he says what has uh, what Lauren, uh, this is what Warren says that he's learned about preaching for life change. He says, and this is the important part. Listen to me carefully. Those of you at Desiring God who are listening to this program, I know you're listening. You've sent me emails. We've chatted, okay? Listen carefully to what Rick Warren says here because this is the part that is important. 
Rick Warren at when in if you don't believe me, go ahead and go online, go to the Saddleback Resources website and buy yourself a copy of Rick Warren's DVDs on purpose driven preaching. He outlines it there too. Okay? Here's what he says. Are you ready? Rick Warren says all behavior is based on a belief. Let me read that statement again. This is a direct quote from Rick Warren from May of 2008. All behavior is based on a belief. Behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing. Okay? Said Warren, it is the deception of Satan's lies that causes us to sin. So, life change always starts in the mind. To help people change, we must change their beliefs First, trying to change people's behavior without changing their beliefs, according to Warren, is a waste of time. So the biblical term uh, for changing your mind is uh, repentance or metanoia, and you don't change people's minds. Uh, uh, you don't change people's minds. The applied word of God changes their minds. So changing the way I act is a result of repentance, and the deepest kind of preaching is preaching for repentance. And Warren says that repentance is the central message of the New Testament, and to produce lasting life change, you must enlighten the mind, engage the emotions, and change the will. Folks, I'm going to just basically lay this out there. This is classic Pelagianism, okay? So basically, the reason why human beings misbehave and don't live the way God wants them to live is because they have false beliefs, okay? In other words, as Warren says, behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing. So if you want to get people to stop sinning and to live the God way, you have to change their way of thinking so that then they'll they'll change the way they behave. Like I said at the beginning of the program, Rick Warren claims to be a Calvinist, but he denies the T in total depra- in tulip, uh, total depravity. Now, Louis Burkhoff, um, in his systematic theology, which is a Calvinistic text, he has a wonderful section in on page two hundred and thirty-three. Okay. 233 at the bottom of the page, the Pelagian view of sin. Listen carefully to what Louis Burkhoff, the Calvinist systematic theologian, writes. He says, um, uh, the statement of the Pelagian view, Pelagius takes his starting point in the natural ability of man. His fundamental proposition is this. God has commanded man to do that which is good. Hence, the latter must have the ability to do it. This means that man has a free will in in the absolute sense of the word so that it is possible for him to decide for or against that which is good and also to do the good as well as the evil. The decision is not dependent on any moral character in man for his will is is entirely uh, interdeterminate. Whether a man will do good or evil simply depends upon his free and independent will. Good and evil are located in the separate actions of man. 
From this fundamental position, the doctrinal teaching of Pelagius respecting sin naturally follows. Sin consists only, listen to this, sin consists only in the separate acts of the will. There is no such thing as a sinful nature, neither are there sinful dispositions. Sin is always a deliberate choice of evil by a will which is perfectly free and can just as well choose and follow the good. He continues, there is no such thing as original sin in the Pelagian view. Children are born in a state of neutrality, beginning exactly where Adam began, except that they are handicapped by the evil examples which they see around about them. Their future course must be determined by their own free choice. The universality of sin is admitted because all experience testifies to it. It is due to imitation and to the habit of sinning that is gradually formed. Okay, The Pelagian view of sin basically is this. The reason why you sin is because you make bad decisions. And the goal is to get you to stop sinning, and the way to get you to stop sinning is by teaching you how to make good decisions rather than evil decisions. Okay? Now, that was Louis Burkhoff's description of Pelagianism. Now, let me reread what Rick Warren said in 2008 at the Purpose Driven Community Conference. All behavior is based on a belief. Is that What the Bible teaches, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and that our human nature has been corrupted by sin? No, that's not it. Rick Warren literally believes, teaches, and confesses the Pelagian heresy. Okay, He doesn't believe in total depravity. He doesn't believe in the bondage of the will. He does not believe in original sin. He has stated it on many numerous occasions. And it's all over his writing that all behavior is based on a belief. Behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing. See, the reason I sin is because, well, I believe wrongly. I believe a lie. So I need to then learn what the truth is to make a good decision so that I will make that decision and then I'll stop Sinning. Rick Warren is a Pelagian. He is not a Calvinist. He's a Pelagian. He fully subscribes to and teaches the Pelagian heresy. And the Pelagian heresy was on full display on Friday night at the Desiring God conference. Now, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to launch right into our review, and we're going to review in total uh, Rick Warren's speech at Desiring God. There's lots of things that we could key in on. I mean, six different translations in the first 20 minutes. I mean, you can do all of that. But the important thing to key in on is this. Rick Warren says he's a Calvinist. Rick Warren says he's he's in the Reformation camp. No, he is not. Rick Warren is a classic Pelagian. Anyway, we're going to take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose, blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, the reason why Rick Warren says the things that he does is because he's a Pelagian. He's not a Calvinist. He's not Reformed. He's Pelagian. Need to remind you all, fighting for the faith? Hang on a second here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's an automatic every month kind of thing. Or you can specify the amount in a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let's get into this uh, review now. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's <clears throat> sermon, it's not really a sermon, it's a lecture, but it's entitled Thinking Purposely for the Glory of Christ, Developing the Mind of Christ. This lecture depends upon a faulty view of sin. What is that faulty view? Here it is. Are you ready? Man is not dead in trespasses and sins. Man is, man's nature isn't really corrupted. We are not sins to slave, to, yes, slaves to sin, death, and the devil. Instead, we're born, well, making bad decisions and believing bad wrongly. And those bad beliefs, well, those are the things that cause us to sin and to make wrong choices. In other words... Sin is just a matter of thinking wrongly. And if you learn how to think rightly, well, then you won't sin. Yeah, if only it were that simple. Boy, I tell you. Yeah, this is classic, classic Pelagianism. It's the Pelagian heresy writ large, and that's who Rick Warren is. He's not the prophet of purpose. He's the prophet of Pelagius. 
And if you understand that, then you'll understand why he says what he says in this miserable, Bible-twisting lecture that was given at the Desiring God conference. Let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here is uh, Pastor Rick Warren, thinking purposely for the glory of Christ, developing the mind of Christ. Listen carefully for the faulty premise of what causes you to sin. Here we go. Hi, everybody. I can't tell you how deeply disappointed I am to not be with you tonight. I was really looking forward to it, you know. And- yeah, the thing I was really looking forward to, Rick, was uh, John Piper asking you the tough questions on stage. Somehow that didn't happen. In 2010, I only accepted three outside speaking engagements here in America. And I really wanted to be with you and with uh, my friend John Piper, who is one of the most godly and Christ-centered men that I know. And uh, I, I look forward to coming back to Minneapolis and doing a, an extended interview with John. And, of course, in April, we're hosting the Desiring God Conference out on the West Coast. Which I think is a total mistake. To, to put it briefly, the last three weeks of my life, I've been in a very strong spiritual battle, uh, unlike anyone I've been in I probably in my entire life. Specifically, uh, in the last week, I've had to go to the emergency room with members of my family, three different members, on three different occasions in one week. Uh, first, about a week ago, I had a family member who was feeling a little uh, chest pain. We went to the emergency room, discovered that he had a 99% blocked artery and had to have emergency heart procedure done. Then yesterday, a member of my family was involved in a literally life-threatening incident, and we had to call 911 and uh, get the ambulance and go to the emergency room again. And then uh, as I was coming home from Pasadena today, I got a third call said another family member had been rushed to the hospital because of an allergic reaction to an injection. And I literally, it's about 10 o'clock at night that I'm taping this, I literally just came from the hospital for the third time uh, in a week. My family needs me, and I've always believed that if you put your family first, God will honor you uh, in your ministry, and as he has in my life. And so I wish I could be with you, but I know that I'm needed to be here with my family right now. Notice the quid pro quo, if you do this, then God will do that. Right now. You've probably heard the expression, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Well, the shoes have been dropping in my life the last three weeks so much it's been like a tap dance. But I'm confident that God has given me a message. I believe that Satan didn't want me to teach it to you, and I believe that Satan didn't want you to hear it. It's- um, I think this is complete manipulation. It's so important. But because of this uh, facility of video, I'm able to be with you tonight. And so I'm going to ask you to listen intently. I'm going to ask you to listen as if your life depends on it and the lives of your members depend on it. Okay, so listen. You, he, he wants you to listen like your life depends upon it because he's discovered what causes sin, and he's going to divulge this, and Satan doesn't want you to know this. Because it does. I'd like us to begin with just a word of prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, I want to thank you for your love for us, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Friends, there is a violent battle going on in your life and around your life 24 hours a day. 1965, Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a book about it. It's called The Invisible War. 
It is the battle for your mind. And that battle is vicious, it is intense, it is unrelenting, and it is unfair because Satan never plays fair. Now, listen, there's a battle going on for your mind. Why? Why is Rick Warren talking this way? Okay. The reason why is because here is what he believes. Again, this is from Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Community Conference. All behavior is based on a belief. And every sin is a lie that I'm believing. So sin, the reason why you sin is because you just believe falsely. We can change your behavior if we can change what you believe. Because the the reason why you sin is because you just believe wrong things. Okay? That's what's at the root of this. This is Pelagianism. We continue. And the reason why it is so intense is because your greatest asset is your mind. I have seen the face of mental illness. I have seen what it's like to see people not be able to hear God because their minds are broken and aren't connecting to God even when they want to connect to God. I have seen that happen. And I know that whatever gets your mind gets you. <clears throat> so one of the most So whatever gets your mind gets you. important things we have to do to teach our churches to te- yet yeah, jesus says by the way that sin comes out of a person it develops inside of his heart it, it comes from within so i mean seriously i my question for rick warren is if we could take a child at the moment of birth and fly that child away to an isolated um an isolated island in the middle of the South Pacific, and the child were to be raised only by God's angels, would the child ever sin? Because that child would never be taught any lies. It would only be taught the truth. Would that child lie? Would that child ever sin? If he's consistent, he'd have to say no. This is Pelagianism. Teach our members, to teach our disciples is that they must learn how to guard, how to protect, how to strengthen, how to renew their minds. Because the battle for sin always starts in the mind. Now, you know, there are many, many passages in Scripture that we could look at tonight. I want us to just read one passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can open to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start with verse 3. Though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. In other words, we don't fight with armor. We don't fight with politics. We don't fight with uh, money. We don't fight with all the humanistic ways. It says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, the Bible says that our job in this battle is to demolish strongholds. You know what a stronghold is? It's a mental block. This is a mental battle here. Did you hear that? See, in Rick Warren's Pelagian Theology... The battle for sin is basically a battle of right thinking. 
See, bad behaviors, the reason why people sin is because, well, they believe bad, they believe wrongly. They believe, they, they believe the wrong things. And so it, basically a stronghold, according to him, is a way of thinking. Okay? That's it. So, all right, let's continue. Talking about pretensions, arguments that set itself up against the knowledge of God. This is a mental battle. And he says, we tear down, we demolish these strongholds. Now, a stronghold can be one of two things. It can be a worldview, which is uh, materialism, hedonism, Darwinism, secularism, relativism, communism. There are many, many atheism. All of the different isms are mental strongholds that people will set up against the knowledge of God. But a stronghold can also be a personal attitude. Worry can be a stronghold. Seeking the approval of other people can be a stronghold. Anything you idolize, that you make an idol in your life, can be a stronghold. Fear, guilt, resentment, insecurity, uh, all of these things can be strongholds in your mind. And the Bible says that we are to tear them down. Now, because of the shortness of time tonight, I don't have time to go into all of this passage. I just want us to look at the very last phrase. It says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. Now, you know, take captive. Take captive every thought. Akmalatidzo uh, there means to, to, um, to control. It means to conquer. Uh, it means to bring into submission. We take captive. We, we make it submit every thought to make it obedient to Christ, obedient to Christ, make it obedient. Hupakoe means to, to bring into submission, to, to bring under control. Now, the question I want us to look at is how do you do that? And how do I teach my people to do that? How do I make my mind mind? I don't know about you, but I've noticed my mind doesn't always mind. In fact, my mind is often disobedient. In fact, it's often very re- rebellious. It wants to go in a different direction. And, and when I want to think a certain way, it wants to go another way. When I need to ponder, it wants to wander. When I need to pray, my thoughts want to float away. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. And he, he says, you know, all the things that I want to do, I end up not doing. And all the things that I don't want to do that I know are wrong, I, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. The fact is... The- yeah, the, he left something apart out of that, though. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of sin, from the flesh? Paul didn't say, Who will save me from this double mind or the, from the sin that comes from my mind? He's He's not quoting the passage correctly. Again... Rick Warren is a classic Pelagian. He is a classic Pelagian who is trying to pawn himself off as a Calvinist, okay? But he's made it clear, all behavior, and this is a direct quote, all behavior is based on a belief. Behind every sin is a lie that I'm believing and he says it's the deception of Satan's lies that cause us to sin. No, 
It is not the deception of Satan's lies that cause us to sin. It is because man and humanity is sinful by nature now. We have a corrupted nature that sins as, as its natural thing. Dogs woof, cats meow, sinners sin. In Rick Warren's view, the reason why you are a, the, reason you're, the reason you're a sinner is because you sin. But the biblical view is the reason you sin is because you're a sinner by nature. Yeah, this is this is Pelagianism on parade over there at the Desiring God conference. The reason we have so many ineffective Christians today is because they don't know how to fight the battle of the mind. What's an ineffective Christian? The reason why we have so many ineffective Christians today is because they don't know how to fight the battle of the mind? Yeah, again, this is Pelagianism. Listen again. fact is the reason we have so many ineffective Christians today is because they don't know how to fight the battle of the mind. And I blame us for that, the pastors. We must spend more time teaching our people how to fight the battle of the mind. As a pastor, it is your job to equip them for this battle. Now, I've been studying this subject for 33 years. I did my first study uh, through the Bible on the book of, uh, on, the, on, the, on the mind, through all the books of the Bible in 1977. And, and the truth is, I could teach on this subject for a week. There's so much material on what the Bible has to say about strengthening our minds, renewing our minds, submitting our minds, uh, 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 you know, bringing them into captivity, the thoughts into captivity. Uh, there, there are at least a hundred principles in God's word that have to do with what we are to do with our brains, with our minds. As I said, they are your greatest asset. Now, notice he's preaching the law without forgiveness of sins. He's preaching just pure, stark obedience. Obedience based on changing your mind. You know, you the reason why you sin is because you believe falsely. And if you just believed correctly, then your behavior would follow. And well, pop, you wouldn't sin anymore. All I want to do tonight is give you six simple principles, six of the many, many principles that we have to teach our members. We have to teach our people if they're going to be effective for Christ, if they're going to live the Christ life. So let's look at these. Number one, if you're taking notes, the first thing you have to teach your members is this. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. You see, we naturally feel that if we think something, it's got to be true because it comes from within us. But just because you think something doesn't make it true. As I said, I've seen the face of mental illness, and I've seen when people can't get the right thoughts. Now, there are many different uh, uh, suggestions that come into our mind. Certainly, the world puts suggestions in our minds that, that are, are false, and, and we're bombarded with those false ideas all the time. And, of course, Satan makes suggestions all the time. But your problem's a whole lot deeper than that. And the problem of your members is a whole lot deeper than that. Yeah, actually, I agree with you. My problem is so much deeper than that. My problem is is that my my I suffer from a corrupted human nature, a nature that has been distorted and corrupted by Adam's fall. And it's not just as simple as believing correctly. And I don't mean to shock you, 
but everybody has a mental illness. We're now, l- listen carefully to what he's saying. Everybody, he, he doesn't mean to shock us, but everybody has a mental illness. So sin is basically, well, it's just a mental illness. It sounds so deep when he says it, though. I don't mean to shock you, but every one of us has a mental illness. Um, no, Rick, um, I have a corrupted human nature. Let me read from the uh, <clears throat> from the Book of Concord, uh, from the... Uh, uh, the formula of Concord regarding original sin. <sighs> Let's see here. Um, yeah, number three on the affirmative uh, thesis from the epitome of the formula of Concord. We believe, teach, and confess that original sin is not a slight corruption of human nature, but that it is so deep a corruption that nothing sound or uncorrupted has survived in man's body or soul in his inward or outward powers. It is as the church sings, through Adam's fall, man's nature and essence are all corrupt. This damage is so unspeakable that it may not be recognized by a rational process, but it can only be understood from the word of God. No one except God alone can separate the corruption of our nature from the nat- from nature itself. This will take place wholly uh, by way of death and, and resurrection. Yeah, so, or as the uh, Augsburg Confession states, here's what the Augsburg Confession states. By the way, this is a correct synopsis of what the Scripture teaches. It is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all men who are born according to the course of nature are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclination from their mother's wombs, and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness in hereditary sin is truly sin, and it condemns to the eternal wrath of God all those who are not born again. Rejected in this connection are the Pelagians and others who deny that original sin is sin, for they hold that natural man is made righteous by his own powers, and thus it's disparaging of the sufferings and merit of Christ. Listen to what Rick Warren is doing here. I don't mean to t- I don't mean to sound terrible, but oh man, we all suffer from a mental illness. And see, the reason why you sin is because you well you believe wrong things, and you are capable on your own steam of not sinning, and that and all we need to do is replace your false beliefs with the true beliefs and principles of the Bible, and then you're, and there will be true behavior modification, and you will stop sinning. That's what Rick Warren is teaching here. We continue. We're all mentally ill. What do I mean by that? The mental illness is called sin. And the Bible uses at least a dozen different phrases for our minds. It says our minds are confused, Deuteronomy 28, anxious, closed, Job 17. They're evil, they're restless, Ecclesiastes 2. They're rash, they're deluded. The Bible talks about troubled mind, depraved mind, sinful mind, dull mind, blinded mind, corrupt mind. The Bible says that our minds are broken by sin. Now, before you think he's he's preaching total depravity, uh, no, that's not what he's preaching at all. Let's continue. Now, what does that mean? It means that's why we can't trust what we even think ourselves. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful 
and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What does that verse mean? It means we have an amazing ability to lie to ourselves. No, it means that we are sinful by nature. (sighs) Big difference. You do it all the time. And so do I. We lie. To, we tell. We tell ourselves that things aren't as bad as they really are. We tell our thing, ourselves that things are better than they really are. We tell ourselves that we're doing okay when we're not doing okay. We're telling ourselves it's no big deal when it is a big deal. In fact, the Bible tells us that you cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. That's why you need to question and you need to teach your people, don't believe everything you think. Just because you get a thought doesn't mean it's correct. This is the reason we have so many fallen leaders. And another one fell just this last week. Because all sin begins with a lie. The Bible says, Satan. Okay, he's saying it himself. Listen again, listen to this. Okay, he's misapplying the Genesis passage at this point. Yes. The root of sin is is the lie that Satan used to deceive Adam and Eve. Okay, that's the root of it. But what happened? They believed the lie and disobeyed God and became sinners. Fallen leaders, and another one fell just this last week. Because all sin begins with a lie. The Bible says Satan is the father of lies. And if he can get you to believe a lie, he can get you to sin. Anytime you... There it is. So if Satan could get you to believe a lie, then he can get you to sin. That means if you can believe the truth, then you can behave properly and you'll be obedient and you won't sin. Is that the biblical solution? This is all law. This is moralism. You sin, you're thinking that you know better than God. God has said this, but what about this? And so you have to question what you think. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves all the time. You know, I've noticed that in the next generation growing up, one of the big values is... Now, here's the problem. Self-deception and false belief about God is a sin. It's not neutral. Notice the way he's defining sin pretty much is only having to do with behavior. But the biblical view of sin includes the thoughts of the mind. False belief about God and lying to yourself is a sin. Authenticity. Well, I'd like to say first, when was inauthenticity ever in style? I don't know that it's ever been. And authenticity has always been uh, an attractive quality. But a lot of guys who are proudly promoting their authenticity don't realize what it really is. You're not authentic until you can publicly admit how inauthentic you are most of the time. Authenticity begins when you start by admitting that you're inauthentic much of the time. And the reason why we can't believe what we tell ourselves, uh, there's a number of reasons. I've put uh, eight, just eight reasons there on your outline. I don't have time to go into these, but we all have blind spots. Some of us have bald spots, but we all have blind spots. Uh, we can't always tell ourselves the truth because we don't stop to really think. A lot of times we make snap judgments. We fail to notice important details. We all have background biases far more than you realize. We jump to conclusions, and the Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 2. Uh, we, we get trapped by categories like it's this or this. When Who said there are only two categories or only three categories? Uh, we miss the big picture. 
But one of the real big reasons why you need to not believe everything you think is because we see what we want to see. I constantly am reading about the brain, and one of the things I just learned is that the optic nerve, which is the only nerve that goes directly to your brain, that when you're looking at something, studies have shown there are actually more impulses coming from your brain forward than from your eye backwards when you are seeing. What does that mean? It means your brain is telling you what you see. It's already preconditioned you, and that's why you can put four people at an accident and each of them will see something different. Why? Because your brain is telling you what to see. You must teach your members, don't believe everything you think. The second thing, you must teach your members in this battle for the mind. You must teach your members to guard their minds from garbage. You must Now, I, I want to point something out. The Bible does teach us to do this. Okay, he's right about the, this is biblical to guide our mind, minds from garbage. All right, you, you feast your eyes on sin, and well, surprisingly, the uh, you know when you do that, well, what happens? Your sinful nature comes to life and begins to say, "I'm hungry, feed me." But see, this is basically a surface level treatment of sin because apparently, sin is well just the result of thinking wrongly. Hmm, yeah, that's the problem. Guard your mind from garbage. Now, the old cliche from the computer early days, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out, is still true today. The amount of garbage you put in is what you're going to get out. If you put bad data into a computer, you're going to get bad results out. If you put bad garbage, mental garbage in your mind, you're going to get garbage out in your life. Uh, again, um, even if I didn't have any outside influences that were sinful, the sin comes from within my heart. It comes out of my corrupt, sinful nature. <sighs> Again, folks, this is classic Pelagianism on parade. At, of all places, the Calvinist Desiring God Conference. Proverbs 15, verse 14. I love this in the New Living Translation. A wise person is hungry for truth, while the fool feeds on trash. That might be a good uh, verse to put on a post-note and put on your television. Or the next time you think about going to a movie, the fool feeds on trash. Now, you know, you go to any nutritionist, they'll tell you that there are three kinds of physical food for your physical body. Uh, and the same is true mentally. There's, there's brain food that makes you smarter. There are actually foods that can make you smarter. There's junk food, which is simple calories. It's, it's not poison, but it's just empty calories. And, and then there's toxic foods, which is poison. That stuff will kill you. Now, the same is true in material. The same is true in what you see and what you hear and allow into your mind. Uh, some food is brain food. There's material that'll make you smarter. They'll make you more godly. That'll make you more mature emotionally. And then there's junk food. And there's a lot of stuff you can fill your mind with that really is just stuffing. It's neither good nor bad. But as the Bible says... All so if you eat the right spiritual food, then you'll do godly things. Things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. In other words, some things aren't necessarily wrong. They're just not necessary. And if you fill your mind with trivia, 
And some people know more about the NFL uh, race than they knew about Paul and Barnabas or, or the seven guys who traveled with Paul in his traveling seminary. And they can give you the stats on every baseball player, but they couldn't tell you, you know, uh, who half the people in the Bible are. The Bible tells us we need to fill our minds with the right thing. If you want to be successful in your ministry, and what's the alternative? Failure? No, I think God wants you to succeed in your ministry. By the way, people say, well, God hasn't called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. You know what? That's just not true. The Bible says God expects you to not just be faithful, but fruitful. God demands fruitfulness. Studied all through scripture, I've called you to go and bear forth fruit. Jesus cursed a fig tree because it didn't bear fruit. That's how important fruitfulness is. Faithfulness is only half the equation. God expects fruitfulness too. And the Bible says in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now, I know you would never invite a couple to come over to your house tonight and sit down and say, why don't you commit an act of adultery in front of us? But you do it every time you watch a TV program that has that. You'd never invite somebody to come over and say, why don't you murder somebody right here in my front uh, living room? But you do it every time you watch a TV show where somebody murders somebody. How do you guard your mind against garbage? How do you train your people to guard their mind against garbage? You see, some people are so open-minded, their brains fall out. They, they just think, I can allow anything into my mind and it isn't going to happen. You're kidding yourself. Now, there are two ways to guard your mind, and both of them are covered in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. The t- Philippians chapter 4. And watch how he's handling God's word here. Six through eight, huh? Um, now, I'm just going to ask the question. If I were to go and read Philippians chapter four, uh, would the passage say, here are the two steps necessary to guard your mind so that you will not sin? Is that what Philippians four teaches? Because he's strip mining at this point and taking verses out of context and then telling me stories about it. Let me read Philippians 4. Um, Well, I'm not really truly reading it in context. I'm just giving the immediate context. If you want the fuller context, go and read all of Philippians and then get to this part. I mean, Philippians begins with a proclamation of the gospel. Chapter 2, we get into this wonderful text about... uh, uh, about Christ uh, in his humble, you know, in in his incarnation, humbling himself, being found in appearance as a man, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Beautiful stuff about Christ, and then in Philippians chapter three, Paul basically saying that he is not clothed with a righteousness that is of his own, but is a righteousness from God. In fact, yeah, let's go there, and then we'll, we'll then we'll read all the way to Philippians chapter four, uh, Philippians chapter three. Paul writing against the moralistic, legalistic Judaizers, the Pharisees, okay, who've uh, of Christianity, if you would, who believe that they're saved by their own self righteousness, okay. <clears throat> Paul writes, verse two: Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more reasons. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to 
uh, zeal. I was a persecutor of the uh, of the church as to righteousness under the law, completely blameless. But whatever gain I had in being a legalist, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of his good works, as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God and depends on faith so that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's, I think, is a good place to uh, begin. Uh, well, let's continue. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to take to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, and if any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example uh, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udiah and I entreat Sinkthi, To agree in the Lord, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul here is not saying, now, the two ways to guard your mind are, one, constant prayer— and two, once you've achieved that, then God will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah, watch what Rick Warren does with this passage. He turns it into a quid pro quo, and the peace that surpasses understanding is something that you earn. Well, listen carefully. Two ways to guard your mind from garbage are, number one, conversational prayer, and number two, concentrated focusing. Conversational prayer and concentrated focusing. Hold on a second here. I'm focusing. Mm, focusing. <clears throat> I'm concentrating while I'm focusing. Hang on a second here. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's not working. Here's what the scripture says. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. If you do this, you will. If you do this, man, he's man. He's just turned this into a law passage. Backing it up. Listen carefully. Everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. If you do this, you will experience God's peace which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. By the way, how do you know when you've got the peace that passes understanding? When you give up trying to understand why God does what he does and you just trust him, then you get the peace that passes understanding. Law, this is all law. This is just rank law. That passage doesn't say, if you do this, then you will get that. Man. Okay, that is just pure self-righteous legalism. Okay, what's missing here? What is the missing ingredient? It's the salt of the stew, if you would. It's Christ. Where's the cross? Where's the forgiveness of sins? Listen, our sin is not conquered by our uh, learning how to focus mm, and constantly praying. Mm, Okay, no, our sin has been conquered and defeated by Christ on the cross. You see, this this message that Rick Warren gives, a lot of people go, why is it that Rick Warren, you know, why there's purpose-driven Catholics, why there's purpose-driven Muslims, you know, why there's purpose-driven Jews? The reason why is because Rick Warren, this is a crossless Christianity. This is a pure works righteousness-based Christianity based upon Pelagianism. Listen, if I can convince Muslims to do the right things, then they'll stop sinning. And it doesn't matter that they that they worship Allah. No, no, the important thing is that they're obedient. Right? Yeah, that's the reason why Rick Warren does the things that he does. That it has everybody scratching their heads. Because it does, this is not a religion of faith that he's proclaiming. This is pure, unadulterated works righteousness. You can be obedient to God. It's up to you to make the right decisions and to stop believing the lies that are causing you to sin and to believe the truth. And when you believe the truth, then you'll do the right behavior. And that's the only thing that God cares about. Now, he says his peace will guard your hearts and minds. If you're taking notes on the outline, circle that. Guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So the first way you guard your heart and mind is to pray about everything, and his peace will guard your hearts and mind. And then he says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right, and think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, notice he says, pray about everything, which, by the way, if you prayed as much as you worried, you'd have a lot less to worry about. He says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And he says that you maintain a running conversation. That means I'm not on my knees. I'm not closing my eyes. I have trained myself to do this. I talk to God all the time. See, Rick, he's, he's, he's an example of the guy who's already doing it. You see, if you can just be more like Rick Warren, then you can be more like Christ. Because Rick Warren, I mean, th- this guy's amazing. 
He's so godly that he's capable of actually praying without ceasing, even while he's communicating with people. He's the supreme spiritual multitasker. Don't believe me? Listen for a minute. I'm talking to him while I'm talking to you. You can have a two-track mind. That's why people are going to be thinking about the roast burning in the oven while they're listening to you preach a sermon. Or they're thinking about stock market or something else. The average person talks 150 words a minute, but the average mind can, can, can uh, 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 hold about 350 words a minute, which is a 250 word per minute boredom factor. So you can certainly talk to God and talk to somebody else at the same time. He says, pray about everything, maintain a running conversation. And then he says, fix your thoughts. How do you do that? By concentrating focus. Now, let me tell you, here's one of the keys to overcoming temptation. Don't resist it. Replace it. Whatever. Uh, this is uh, well, this is what I was trying to focus on the family. If, you, if you've heard my uh, my story of how I left uh, evangelicalism uh, to become a confessional Lutheran, uh, part of that re- the reason why is because I was sick and tired of all the, pe- the people going out around on the Focus on the Family program. I worked at Focus on the Family, basically offering sin conquering techniques. And uh, one of the sin-conquering techniques uh, was uh, put out. I, Jay Cardi was the guy, and uh, the name of the book is Counterattack. And in there, he teaches you if you are having a temptation to sin, you know, then you can you can put that down using what are called polar bear alerts. Yeah, polar bear wor- alert works like this. Are you ready? Okay, let's say that you've got a you've got a temptation to sin, and you know you, you've got a, a thought that's now. There, that's good. It's going to make you sin. Well, what you do is you you engage in replacement thinking. You see, you you train your mind so that when a temptation comes, that triggers a, a big klaxon sound inside of your head. Ooga, ooga, dive, dive, and and then what happens is is that you you train your mind to do this so that when the temptation comes, you then quickly replace that sinful temptation thought with a Bible verse. We take every thought, Captain, make it of obedience to Christ. Boom. And see, there you go. You've just replaced the temptation with a good thought and whammo, blammo, you haven't sinned. Ta-da! You are now an obedient servant. Whatever you resist, persist. The more you hit a nail, the harder you drive that into the wood. And when people say, I don't want to think about this, I don't want to think about this, I don't want to think about this, what are they doing? They're thinking about it. And whatever gets your focus gets you. James tells us that. And sin, when it is conceived, brings forth death. So he says, you don't resist it. It's like when I was a little kid and my my mom would... That's funny. James 4, 7. um, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, I'm sure he's aware. Yeah. Bake cookies and I'd go up to the edge and, and mom would say, now, Ricky, don't eat those cookies. I said, I'm not, mom. I'm just looking. I'm looking. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And then I grab it and eat it. Well, that's why you do. What's the key? Don't resist, replace. You just change the channel. You refocus. Don't resist. You refocus. It is the, the power, expulsive power of a new affection that turns your mind away from the things that the devil wants you to focus on to the things that God wants you to focus on. Now, guard your mind from garbage is the second key. The third thing we have to teach our uh, members in this battle for the mind is to never let up on learning. Never let up 
on learning. In other words, you must become a lifelong learner. You must love knowledge. You must love wisdom. You must love the act of learning. You know, the word disciple means learner. You cannot be a disciple of Christ without being a learner. Jesus said, come to me, those of you who are weary and, and, and heavy laden. By the way, that's a felt need. And I will give you rest. That's a felt need. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What do you do when you take on a yoke? You share a burden with... with... Uh, come to me, all you are heavy and weary. And uh, That's a felt need. He's, Jesus is talking about those who are weary under the burden of the law. That's not felt needs. It's another animal. You lighten the load. And he says, learn of me. God wants us to learn of him. You know, a lot of people act like their education ended when they graduated. I've met some pastors who haven't cracked a book since seminary. I'm sure that's none of you. But they've never studied anything else. You've never taken another class since you got out of school. Are you kidding me? To learn means to be a disciple. All leaders are learners. The moment you stop learning, you stop leading. Growing churches require growing pastors. The moment you stop growing, your church stops growing. Now, you can learn from anybody if you just know the right questions. The Bible says, counsel in the heart of man is a deep well, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, you can learn from anybody if you just learn to draw it out. And how do you do it? You draw it out by asking questions. Why? Because everybody's ignorant, just on different subjects. You know some things I don't know. I know some things you don't know. And the person sitting next to you knows some things that neither of us know. That's why the Bible says iron sharpens iron. But if you're going to learn, you've got to have one quality in your life. You've got to be humble. Why does God resist the proud and give grace to the humble? Because the humble are teachable. I'd rather admit that I don't know it all than to pretend that I know it all and not learn. You can learn from anybody. I learned from churches larger than Saddleback. I learned from churches smaller than Saddleback. I learned from guys older than me and guys from younger. I learned from guys who don't like me. I learned from critics. I learned from people who totally misunderstand me. Why? Because you can learn from anybody. Actually, I'm smarter than my enemies. Why? Because my enemies only learn from themselves, but I learn from them and me, so I know more than they do. I learn what they know plus what I know. Now, the Bible. <laughs> yeah, didn't he just say that God exalts the humble? He is so, I mean, he is so smart. This is the most humble thing I've ever heard Rick Warren say. This is humility on parade. I'm smarter than all of them. Paul says this in Proverbs 18, verse 15. The mind of a smart person is eager, circle that, eager to get knowledge. That's a mark of intelligence. But the wise person listens to learn more. You got to be eager and you got to be willing to listen. You know the old cliche that God gave us two. You got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. Lots and lots and lots and lots of law. I'm not hearing any gospel here. I mean, this some of this is even some pretty good advice. But, I mean, do I need a crucified and risen Savior for any of this? Where does the crucified and risen Lord fit into any of this? I mean, does Jesus have no role in protecting our minds? Two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we speak. Proverbs ten fourteen: wise men store up knowledge. Circle that word, store up, that phrase. 
Do you know in Scripture that's the only thing we're supposed to store up? Jesus told us don't store up money, don't store up treasure, don't store up material possessions where moths and rust uh, doth corrupt. But the Bible says store up knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is far more important than money. You can always get more money, but knowledge is something you're going to take with you. If you store up knowledge in yourself, you're taking you to heaven. You're leaving all the wealth behind. You're leaving all the material things. All. The- Wait a second here. Got to back that up. Did, did I hear that correctly? Hang on a second. Possessions where moths and rust uh, doth corrupt. But the Bible says store up knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is far more important than money. You can always get more money, but knowledge is something you're going to take with you. If you store up knowledge in yourself, you're taking you to heaven. If you store up knowledge in yourself, you're taking you to heaven. Weird sentence. Not sure what it means. But it sure does sound like law, not gospel. It sounds like legalism, not grace or faith. Where's faith in this? You're leaving all the wealth behind. You're leaving all the material things, all of the stuff behind. Now, one of the ways you can store up knowledge, there's a couple ways to do this, but one of the ways you can store up knowledge is to start a family library, a godly family library, and leave it as a legacy to the next generation. I know this because four generations back, gave their library to three generations back, gave it to two generations back, my dad, who gave it to me. I began collecting books when I was 16 years old. And see, that's a sign that he's really godly. You can always tell the godly people as to whether or not they have a family library. Those of you who don't have a family library, well, you're probably going to hell. For many years of my life, I read a book a day. You say, how'd you do that? Big print, Lots of pictures, real thin. <laughs> but I read books. Today I have over 20,000 volumes in my library. Why? Because when I was 16 years old, I read a book that said, the impact on your life will be largely from the people you meet and the books you read. So I decided to get very intentional about both of those, who I would meet in life and what I would read in life. And when you begin to build a library of godly Christian books, you're leaving a legacy for the next generation. You know, twice in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says, store up my commands within you. Well, you're, if you're going into eternity, you're going to take that with you. You know, uh, uh, in uh, December, I'm actually going to start a new webcast called The Pastor's Library in which uh, since I've read so many books, I can tell you all the ones to skip over because there's a lot of worthless ones. And you only need to read the really great ones, the great classics. In fact, here I would suggest you do this. If you're serious about growing in knowledge and growing uh, in in your mind, you need to read 25% of your books from the first 1,500 years of church history. The first 1,500 years, 25% of your reading. A lot of people act like nothing happened between Paul and Luther. God was at work all that time. He was, and it's a, it's a, dis, it's a dismissal of the, of the church of God that God was not having his faithful during those times. And you need to be reading those people. And then- I completely agree. Read the church fathers. And keep in mind that they're sinful human beings and that their writings are not inspired. 
But they, boy, I tell you, the church fathers really give us a completely different picture of Christianity than what Rick is giving us. I should know. I've been spending a lot of time in patristics lately. Then you need to read 25% in the last 500 years since the Reformation. Then you need to leave 25%, I recommend, uh, in the last 100 years. And I recommend that you only read 25% of contemporary, say, in the last 10 years. A lot of people know all the contemporary books and know none of the classics. It's not like God began the church in 1990. He's been working in his body for 2,000 years. And you can save yourself a lot of time if you read those. It's wise to learn from experience, but it's wiser to learn from the experiences of others. It's also easier. It also saves a lot of time. I don't have all the time to make all the mistakes myself. So I'm constantly reading the classics. I'm constantly reading. And every year I read through the, the systematic, complete works of a great thinker. He, oh, you know, this is one of the things that just totally grates against me is that Rick Warren always holds himself up as the example. I mean, he is the, I mean, Sorry, but Jesus says, you know, know, basically do your good works in secret. Don't tell everybody because the hypocrites are the ones who like to pray in the market or have, you know, to basically let their works be seen by all. You know, I mean, when I give advice, many times I don't tell you whether or not I'm the one doing it because I can't say I do anything with consistency. You know, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. My life is completely inconsistent. Even the good things I know I should be doing, I don't do them. And I have to repent of my not doing them and be forgiven for that. But uh, don't worry. Rick has got to figure He's got over 20,000 books in his library. And yeah, huh? that's great. I think reading is an important thing. I agree. We should be reading from other centuries. This is good advice by C.S. Lewis on this. Uh, his uh, treatise on reading old books, fantastic work. Oh, but man, I tell you, it just drives me nuts because Rick, I mean, obviously he's going to heaven because look how, look how holy he is. Last year, I read through the 26 volumes of uh, Jonathan Edwards, which took an awful lot, and the volumes are about that thick. Uh, this year, I'm reading through the uh, Church Dogmatics, the complete works of Karl Barth. And I've read through Wesley, and I've read through all... Barth. Neo-Orthodoxy. All of these different leaders. Why? Because it's, it's, it's uh, prideful to think that these people can't teach us what we need to know. Today. There's really nothing new under the sun. By the way, if it's new, it's not true. Because truth is eternal. It's been around. It was a true a thousand years ago. It'll be true a thousand years from today. Truth is never uh, invented. It is only discovered. And if God has shown it, Test truth. Somebody else has seen the in the body before you. In fact, if you ever come up with the truth that nobody else has ever seen, I can tell you this: you're wrong. <laughs> because God speaks. Then will you tell Pastor Stephen Furtick that he's wrong about his Sun Stand Still prayer book? Because you basically have endorsed his ministry. Next to his body. The Bible says the wise man stores up knowledge. Look at this next verse, Proverbs 19, verse 8. Those who get wisdom do themselves a favor, and those who love learning will succeed. You've got to make time for think time. You've got to plan it in your life that there's this balance between doing and between thinking. 
And, and, and you have to have both of them in your life. Now, let me give you very quickly, I could do an entire seminar on this, but I'll just briefly over, uh, overview uh, what I call the five levels of learning. This is the pedagogy of discipleship that we use at Saddleback. We've used it for 30 years. And it's the reason why we've brought so many people in the front door, but sent so many out the back door on ministry and mission. See, I believe you judge the health of a church not on its seating capacity, but on its sending capacity. You don't judge the health of an army by how many, how many uh, soldiers sit in the mess hall and eat every week and listen to your Bible study. You judge how many, you know, the health of an army by how many on the front end, out on the, on the front line doing battle in the world. At Saddleback Church in the last 10 years, we've baptized over 22,000 new believers. I don't believe there's a church in America that has done that. 22,000 new believers baptized in the last 10 years. I baptized 25 last week, 32 the week before. On the other hand, we know how to bring them in, build them up, train them for, and send them out. And in the last eight years, we've sent out almost 15,000. I think it's 14,882 of our members have gone overseas to literally every nation in the world. We decided to be the first church in history to go to Ta'ethne. Now, I know what that means, but we used the national uh, boundaries of the 195 nations. And uh, we are now four nations away from completing to every nation. And we will finish it by October 10th that we will have been the first church to send nearly 15,000 members on mission to literally every nation in the world. How do you do that? Well, you got to teach people to not just love the word, but to do the word. Now, there are five levels of learning, and here's what they are. Knowledge, perspective, conviction, character, and skills. Knowledge, perspective, the Bible calls it wisdom, conviction, character, and skills. The first two have to, know, have to do with knowing. The second two have to do with being. And the third one has to do with doing. Now, we use these as a template for all of our discipleship, moving people from come and see to come and die at Saddleback Church. First, you have to teach your people to learn knowledge. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And because they don't know the word of God, they're, they're destroyed. Not only that, they don't know church history. That's why I bet you don't know that at Saddleback Church on the back of our bulletins, we have a church uh, figure from history every week, a little bio on our bulletin, a great person from church history. We have a theological word of the week on the back of our bulletin. Why? Because I want the people of Saddleback Church to know theological words, and I want them to know the great saints of history. That's part of, of knowing the knowledge. And the fact is, you can learn the Bible without really knowing it, uh, because you know all them facts, but you don't really know the content. You haven't applied it. You don't really know it until you do it. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, fellas, your problem is you don't know Scripture, nor the power of God. Now think about what a put down that was. Because to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had to memorize it, and Jesus says, you know your problem, guys? You just don't know the Scripture. Why? You can have it memorized and not know it. 
You must teach your people. What was Jesus's rebuke to the Pharisees again? He says, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify of me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. Again, where does Jesus fit into this theology? I am just not seeing a need for Jesus at all. I just need to think the right thing so that I behave the right way. Oh, knowledge to love knowledge, to get rid of this anti-intellectualism. We need great Christian intellectuals today. More than ever before, people are a lot brighter than me to be intellectuals, to, to battle on the, the, that level in the worldviews of life. Then the second thing you need is perspective. Now, the Bible calls perspective wisdom. Wisdom is seeing life from God's viewpoint. It's seeing from God's perspective. Knowledge is knowing what God does. Wisdom and perspective is knowing why he does it. Knowledge is the bottom uh, rung. Perspective is the next building block a little bit higher. Some churches are great at Bible knowledge, but they don't teach people perspective. They don't teach them wisdom. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, I love this in the message paraphrase. God says, I don't think the way you think and the way you work. (coughs) The message paraphrase. Uh, I, I've lost. Are we up to six translations plus the message paraphrase now? Oh, boy. Work isn't the way I work. Well, obviously, that's true. Psalm 103, verse 7, King James says, The Lord revealed his acts to the children of Israel and his ways to Moses. Did you get that? God revealed his acts. The children of Israel saw the miracles of God. They saw the Red Sea split. They saw the water at Mara. They saw the doves and the manna. And, and they saw all, all of these different things. They saw the acts of God. But Moses knew the ways of God. He knew why God did it. He got, they had knowledge. He had perspective. You see, in knowledge, the goal is to know the word of God. But in perspective, the goal is to have the mind of God. Now, I, I want to point something out here. Um, did you watch how, the, the, how that all progressed? He began, well, we need to have knowledge and perspective. And the Bible calls it this. And then he eisegeted these two concepts into the scripture. Yeah. And, and he used multiple translations to do it. Rick Warren is a classic Bible twister. Eisegesis extraordinary. I mean, this is just a classic example of not him not really teaching what the Bible says, but basically all of this wisdom and stuff that he's learned and reading it into the text. And all of this is basically presupposing a Pelagian view of sin. You sin because, well, you just have ma- you're making bad choices because you believe wrongly, and if you ro- if you r- believe rightly, then you will make the right choices, and you'll well, you'll stop sinning. You'll be obedient. We must help people develop the mind of Christ. Then the third thing you need is conviction. Conviction is the third building block, and they build on each other. You get knowledge of the word. And then you get perspective on why God does what he, what is God's perspective on temptation? What is God's perspective on evil? What is God's perspective on my past, my present, my future? What is God's perspective on sin? What is God's perspective on Satan? Once you start getting perspective, you start developing convictions. Now, what is a conviction? Well, it's not an opinion. An opinion is something you'll argue about. A conviction is something you'll die for. And what we need today are men and women of godly biblical convictions. 
If you know anything about history, you know that the people who've had the greatest impact on our world, for good or for evil, were not the smartest. We're not those who had the most knowledge. We're not the wealthiest, not the most talented, but those who had the deepest convictions for right or wrong. Hitler, Buddha, Marx, Gandhi, whoever had the deepest convictions, and of course, Jesus had the deepest convictions of all. If you want to know how much Jesus loves you, look at the cross. With arms outstretched and nail-pierced hands, Jesus says, this is how much I love you. I love you so much it hurts. I love you so much I'd rather die than live without you. I love you so much that every drop of blood that's falling to the ground is saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, every drop of blood is propitiating God's wrath and atoning for me. And it's more than just, I love you, I love you. This turns Jesus into just one big sloppy wet example of somebody who loves you. See, his arms are outstretched because what Jesus really wants to do on the cross is give you a hug. That's conviction. Now, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 about being settled in your own mind. That means you've got godly convictions. Faith is the conviction of things we do not see. Let me give you some examples. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. That's a conviction. It's not an opinion. Faith is being certain of what we hope for. Faith is trust in Christ. That's a weird definition of uh, faith that he just created and basically quoted a verse uh, completely out of context and and then ripped just a piece of it out of it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Faith is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a conviction. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he did foreknow, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that we might become the firstborn among many brothers. That's a conviction. That's not an opinion. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's a conviction. That's why Kay and I give 91% of our income and live on 9%. And, and, and here's the good news, Rick. You've already received your reward for telling everybody what you give. Yeah. Since we all know that you give 91%, you keep telling the world that you this is what you do. You've received your reward in its entirety for all of that. I hope you enjoyed the reward. The conviction. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's a conviction. We need men and women of conviction because most people don't stand for anything today. Let me tell you the greatest conviction. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I don't have to understand it. I'm going to trust God no matter what. Now, in conviction, we want to get the heart of God. You see, I don't want to just see what God sees. I want to feel what God feels about the world, about the lost, about his word, about his... I mean, this is just one string of one absurd statement after another, and then he uses a Bible verse to try to justify it. Oh, my... See, I... Yeah, I want to feel what God feels. I, I... Oh, man his church. 
I need to learn knowledge, then I need to add on to that perspective, then I need to add on to that the convictions. Then I need to, then I need to, then I need to, then I, law, this is all law. Where's the gospel? He mentioned the cross, but that was Jesus' little drops of blood, you know, looking like the little cartoon character. You know, when you go and you give blood at the uh, Red Cross and afterwards they, they give you a little sticker that says, I gave blood, and there's a tiny little blood drop, you know, cartoon character on the sticker, and you know, it's, I gave blood today, and a little blood drop has eyes and a little smiley face and feet and stuff like that. See, every all of Jesus' little blood drops is sitting there going, I love you, I love you, I love you, I just love you. <sighs> to come out of knowing the mind of God. Now, once you begin to develop convictions, you start developing habits. And the sum total of your habits is what we call character. Character is just the sum total of your habits. You can't say you have the character of honesty unless you are habitually honest. You can't say you have the character of integrity or kindness unless you are habitually kind. It means you're kind all the time. If I were to say to my wife, honey, I'll be faithful to you 29 days of the month. Partial faithfulness is unfaithfulness. It's only faithfulness if it is my habit to always be faithful to her. Uh, yeah, um, again, I kind of go back to my notes from 2008. I swear Rick Warren's becoming the next John Wesley. Have you ever read John Wesley's fine little book called The Plain Account of Christian Perfection? Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of what Rick Warren is pushing for here, you know, except for it's, it's, slightly, it's a slightly less rigorous form than Wesley had in his book about Christian perfection. Yeah, see, you have good character if you are habitually honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, habitually sounds like something a little bit less than perfectly honest. Um, see, uh, Rick, here's the, my problem, and that is is that um, even if I have a habitual habit of telling the truth, there's still times well when I don't. Yeah, and see, every time I don't, even though I might habitually tell the truth most of the time, then those other times when I don't tell the truth, that makes me a liar. Um, that means I'm in need of the blood, shed blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Is it me or does this sound like, I mean, basically it's up to me to solve the, the sin problem. I've got to conquer all of this and i got to get busy and get that habitual thing going so that I have good character. And uh, this is a, is a, a complete uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of sanctification based upon thinking right thoughts because the it's 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 wrong beliefs that cause you to sin and if you can think rightly then what will happen is is that then you'll go from this step you'll go from uh, belief to conviction to uh, habitual thing to character and and see you'll be obedient then. <sighs> Again, this is watering down the law. This is not preaching the law to kill, to destroy our self-righteousness. This is preaching the law so that you can somehow deceive yourself into thinking that you're pulling it off. And in reality, it's this kind of preaching that creates only two types of people. Are you ready? Here they are. Well, actually, there's three types. So I'll give you three types of people. This type of preaching creates hypocrites who want to put forward the facade that they're pulling this off when they know that they're not. Uh, second are those who despair and know that they're not pulling it off and they're just completely just, you know, they despair at this point. And they, and, you know, they, 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 they know that God has to be angry with them because they can't ever get to the point of habitually being able to say that I pulled this off. 
Um, and then the third kind are atheists. Yeah, this is just moralism. This is not the gospel, and this is not Christian sanctification that he's preaching. And those of you who are Calvinists, you should know better. Read Burkhoff on sanctification. This is not what Burkhoff teaches, the Bible teaches regarding sanctification. Read Calvin on sanctification. This is not it. How do you develop character? By developing the habits of love and joy and peace and patience. Those nine qualities, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's a perfect picture of the character of Christ. You want to become like Christ? Put on the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The goal is to become more like God in our character. Whose fruit is it again? Put on the fruit of the Spirit? Me putting on the fruit. Who's, if it's the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit the Spirit produces in my life. It's not my fruit. It's his fruit. Oh, not to become God. You're never going to become God. You're never going to be a mini God. You're, you're no God. You're not even a mini God. That's the oldest lie in, in the book. You shall become as gods. If you're a God, why don't you change all the world? And why don't you, you can't even fix your own problems, much less the world. But you've got to learn character. Now, when you begin to develop character and you begin to do things habitually, like daily Bible reading, regular fasting, regular prayer, regular days of prayer, regular witnessing that these are the habits of your life, the spiritual habits, the disciplines, the devotional uh, habits of the heart. When you begin to do that, the more you do them, better you get. And then you get the last level of learning, and that is skill. Skill is when you get good at it because you do it over and over and over. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 10.10, if the axe is dull and its edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. It's one of my life verses. And I love this verse because it says if if you're chopping wood, it helps to have a sharp axe. It says if you got a dull axe, it takes more energy to cut the wood. But it says if you have a sharp axe, it doesn't take as much. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, More strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Did you hear that? It didn't say prayer will bring success. It didn't say desire will bring success. It didn't say dedication. I know a lot of people who are dedicated. Skill will bring success. I could pray all... Oh, man. Yeah, wow. I just, wow. Wow. All I want as a farmer, and if I've got a wheat field and I use a grape picker, it isn't going to work no matter how much I pray. And if I'm out there and I'm trying to harvest tomatoes and I'm using a, a, a corn or a wheat combine, guess combine, guess what? It isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. You have to have the right skills. I know a lot of guys who are godly and love the Lord and preach the word and their churches are dying on the vine. The Bible says skill will bring success. You are never wasting your. So apparently if you have a church and well, you know, it's not growing like his is, well, then you just are not applying the right knowledge and skills and things. You're doing something wrong. Right there. I mean, right there at Desiring God. If, If you're a faithful pastor, if you're faithfully preaching God's word and it just so happens that your church isn't growing, You're doing something wrong.
your time when you're sharpening your axe. That's why I challenge you to go to conferences like these, to come to conferences at Saddleback, to go to conferences around. Learn from anybody and everybody. Why? Because we don't want to just know the Word of God. We don't want to just have the mind of God. We don't want to just have the heart of God. We don't want to just develop the character of God. We want to do the will of God. The Bible says, be doers of the Word, not hearers only. I have been misquoted more times than you can imagine when I said that we need another uh, Reformation, and this one needs to be about deeds, not creeds. And everybody said, oh, Warren doesn't believe in creeds. Anybody who listens to my sermon knows that I preach on the creeds about every other year. I do a series on the creeds. Of course I believe in the creeds. But the issue is not creeds alone. Creeds must be turned into deeds. It's not one or the other. It's both. The Bible says you must teach them the kind of... You know what's so funny, uh, Rick, is that at the time when you made that statement, uh, you know, five, six years ago now, you weren't adding that clarification at all. Now you are. Hmm. The behavior that goes with sound doctrine. We must be doers of the word. Would you write this down? You only believe the part of the Bible you actually do. You say, I believe in witness. Oh, boy. You only believe the part of the Bible that you actually do. No, that's not true. Because when I sin, and I sin daily, and so do you, I know that what I did was wrong and was, and was sinful. Oh, man. I mean, this is, oh, man. This, uh, 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 again, here we go again. This is Pelagianism. The reason you sin is because you believe the wrong things. If you believed correctly, then you were your behavior would follow automatically. This is Pelagianism. Do you do it? No. Then you don't believe in it. I believe in tithing. Do you do it? No. Then you don't believe it. I believe in having family devotions. Do you do it? No. Then you don't believe it. You only believe what you actually do. And, and the problem today is that we know far more than we're doing, and we're teaching people too much. Listen to this. Oh, man. Yeah, this goes back to that fundamental assumption that the Bible is a manual for living, and that, see, we're teaching people too much Bible because they're not obeying everything we're teaching. we got to go back, and we we got to kind of withhold God's Word and get them good at that this part of it before we teach them more of it. Unbelievable. We're teaching them too much. We're teaching them so much that they can't apply it. For instance, in the background I grew up in, in the Southern Baptist Church, first in the Sunday morning, I would go to Sunday school, and I was supposed to get... You know, I, I'm going to be, like, completely disappointed if John Piper, Al Mohler, Thabidiana Buile, and others do not openly rebuke this teaching. I mean, seriously. I've seen the Twitter streams, you know, on both sides of it. I've seen the angry people going, what is this guy talking about? And I've seen the other, oh, we got to understand that Rick Warren's our brother. Great, fine. Rick Warren's my brother. Okay, even it, it, listen, my biological brother, if my biological brother were doing something really habitually wrong, we would have a family intervention. It's time for a family intervention with Rick Warren. This is patently false.
this view that the Bible is only a manual and you're not te- you're teaching people too much because they're not obeying the stuff that you've already taught them. Unbelievable. Get an application that changed my life. Then I would go to morning service and I get another application that's supposed to change my life. Then I would come back Sunday night to a thing called church training where I was supposed to have another application to change my life and then easing evening service with another application to change my life. That's four on one day. Then I was supposed to come back to midweek prayer and Bible study, where I was to get another application, and maybe a Thursday morning study, which I was to have another application. And then I was to have a quiet time seven days a week. That's about 14 applications a week. Friend, your life can't change that much, and neither can mine. I'm good if I get one good application a week. And what's- What is he reducing the Bible down to? Something you have to do. Wow. This is a complete and utter confusion of law and gospel. This isn't Christian sanctification, folks. This is just rank, rank pharisaical moralism, completely hinging on Pelagian, uh, a Pelagian uh, heresy. This is, oh, man. The problem in a lot of our churches is before they apply last week's message or this morning's message, we're already coming back and teaching them something else. And they're taking notes and they're filling notebooks and they're thinking that because they're writing it down, they've got it. They don't. And there's a wide gap between knowing and doing in American Christianity. And it's caused by too much teaching. Before people actually apply what it is, they actually go to the next thing. At the Desiring God conference, we heard an apologetic from Rick Warren defending the seeker-driven preaching model, which basically you can take biblical preaching and fill a thimble with it because it's so thin. And, well, here's the apologetic for it. We need to stop teaching so much Bible until people start obeying it. And as soon as, when they start obeying it more, then we'll teach more. Wow. And, they're, and, they're, and they can't handle it. They can't change that much. Now, another weakness of the church today when it comes to learning is that we're not teaching people to be self-feeders. We're doing all the feeding instead of teaching them how to feed themselves. Now, you guys, I hate it. When- I, I can't. I, I, wow. 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 The job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. That's what Christ said. So here, here's the idea, okay? You sheep out there, stop coming to church and expect me to be teaching you the, you know, and feeding you. You got to stop with that expectation. First of all, I'm going to spoon feed you just a little bit of this, and 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 I will only give you another piece of God's word only after you have been obedient to the little bit that I've given you. And if you're sitting there going, I'm starving to death, pastor, well, you've got to be a self-feeder. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is not what Christ said for his pastors to do. What What did the Holy Spirit say through the Apostle Paul? Preach the word in season and out of season. The Holy Spirit did not say to the Apostle Paul, Preach a little bit of the word, and after they start obeying that, then preach more of it. And no, he said preach the word. This is a complete and utter, this is just unbelievable. This is complete. This is a different religion, folks. 
This is not Christianity. This is Pelagianism run amok. Then conference speakers um, get up and, and they promote their books. Uh, and I, I hate that. But there is a book that you need to teach your congregation. It's called Warren's Bible Study Methods. I wrote it 34 years ago. Yeah, and he doesn't follow it. By the way, Warren, the, the book, Warren's Bible Study Method, written 34 years ago, it's it's not actually it's not bad. There's, there's some pretty decent advice in there uh, regarding chapter outlining and, and things like that. It's a pretty exegetical book. Okay, it, it, it as far as you know hermeneutics are concerned, it, it's kind of lay level and not not very in depth. But the point is, is that it's not all bad. Here, here's the deal, though. Warren doesn't even follow. He doesn't even smoke what he's uh, what he's pushing here. Okay. Because he does not follow the biblical study methods that in his book, he doesn't follow them in his preaching. If he did, he wouldn't be doing what he does. 34 years ago. It's in 17 languages, and uh, it, it teaches you how to do a systematic Bible study, uh, a thematic study, how to do a book synthesis. What are the nine steps of chapter analysis? What are the steps on how to do a word study? What are the steps on how to do a biographical study? How do you do a chapter summary? What are the six ways to meditate? You see, we, uh, we do a lot of ought to preaching without giving them the how to's. I grew up when my dad was on the staff of a seminary. So I've heard probably more sermons than most people have growing up. And as I heard all these sermons, I used to write up to the edge of the message. So I'd write my Bible, YBH, YBH, YBH. Yes, but how? Interpretation without application is abortion. We're teaching people to have big heads and little hands and little hearts and little feet. We must apply the word of God. Jesus always gave the how-tos. He always taught people how to do it. Now, the Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect. Uh, uh, can I throw a flag on that play? Uh, really, Jesus always taught the how to's. Peace. All who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. Your mental state is totally dependent upon what you think about. Keep your mind fixed on the word of God, the will of God the convictions of God, the character of God, the skills of God. Now, there's one other area, and this is a big one that I think we need to talk about as we close. If you're going to teach people how to fight the battle for the mind, you must teach them how to let God stretch their imagination. This too. What? We have to teach people how to let God stretch their imaginations? What? <laughs> Where does it teach this stuff in the Bible? I mean, seriously, what is he talking about? Where in the Scripture does it teach us that we have to let God stretch our imaginations? I, I can't think of a single passage that says that. Oh, I'm sure we'll get something completely twisted and out of context. Just hang on a second. Here it comes. Is a part of the battle. This, too, is the part of thinking. Let God stretch your imagination. You see, everything that happens in life begins with a dream. Somebody has to imagine it first. 
everything in life begins with a dream. It's a gift that God gave to us, a vision and imagination. When uh, 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 every building you see, an architect imagined it before it was built. Every piece of art, every song was imagined before somebody wrote it or or painted it. Every athletic award that's ever been won, every gold medal, the, the, the athlete imagined it before it ever happened. Every church that's ever been started, somebody, either a group of people or church planter, imagined that church first. Nothing happens till somebody starts dreaming. And we as pastors need to help our people become great, godly dreamers. Proverbs 29 verse 8 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. It's Proverbs twenty nine eighteen actually, um, but I mean even I make those kind of make mistakes. Uh, twenty nine eighteen, um, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen doesn't teach us about dreaming things into existence. He just completely mishandled God's word here. You know, Rick Warren can't help it. I mean this. I mean, he just is, he's not capable of sound biblical exegesis anymore. All he does is twist God's word. And this entire listening to this experience, it's been nothing but a complete mangling and twisting of God's word into all these principles that you need to do. Where's the cross again? Oh, yeah, that's all the little blood drops going, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, but Christ dying for all of our sins, him conquering sin, death, and the devil— for us, sanctification through the working of the Holy Spirit. Hello, this is pull yourself up by your bootstraps, a Baron Munchausen style. And now we're twisting God's word about imagination. No, Proverbs twenty nine uh, eighteen does not say that where there is no vision, uh, then the you know those bad things. That that's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about that kind of dreaming or vision. L- listen again. Here we go, backing it up just a smidge. March 1st, nothing happens till somebody starts dreaming. And we as pastors need to help our people become great, godly dreamers. Proverbs 29, verse 8 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. You know that word vision. It it, it means dream. It means revelation. It means vision from God. It means you got to have a dream. It says, yeah, Proverbs 29, 18 is not that kind of dream. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Literally, that word there, you know, in the Hebrew means they're out of control. When you don't have an... Yeah, that's right. That's why the ESV says they cast off restraint. It's about God's law. It's about God's word. Not about dreaming up or concocting some grand vision for your life or your church. Overarching vision for your life. You don't have an overarching dream for your life. You don't have an overarching goal for your life. Your life's out of control. Unbelievable. Uh, This is an abomination. This is an absolute abomination. If the folks at Desiring God do not publicly rebuke the false teaching here, but tacitly go along with it, we've got to call the people at Desiring God to repentance. They have got to respond to this publicly. 
I mean, this, I cannot believe they allowed this to go unchallenged. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And what we need today are great dreamers. And my pray, prayer is that Acts chapter 2 will be true in your church. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Let me ask you quite frankly, what's your dream for your next 10 years? Have you even written it down? Thoughts this? Oh, for heaven's sakes. What's my dream for the next? I don't even know if I'm going to be around in 10 years. And if I, if the Lord should tarry and I should still, my carcass still be working, then I'm going to be preaching the gospel. They'll entangle themselves when they go through the lips and the fingertips. If you haven't written it down, you haven't thought about it. Writing makes a man more precise. What's your dream for your church? What's your dream for your family? What's your dream for you personally? Not just what do I want to do. What do I want to be? How are you going to be different 10 years from now? We're getting ready to start in two weeks what we're calling Decade of Destiny at Saddleback. And we're actually writing out our dreams for the character changes we want to see in our lives. And once again, you know, hey, he's smoking what he's pushing. We've, we're doing the decade of destiny. Have you done the decade? Well, you're not as holy as they, they are if you don't have your decade of destiny figured out. Over the next 10 years, what would you attempt for God if you knew you couldn't fail? You see, what we need today are great imaginers. Each generation needs its C.S. Lewis's, needs its J.R.R. Tolkien's. Needs its Chestertons, needs its Tolstoys, Dostoevsky's. We need these great dreamers, these great imagineering people. Some of you should be that. Some of the we need these in science. We we need we need the uh, the the uh, uh, the the um, uh, oh the the Boyles. We need the Pascals. We, we need those who who have created all of the Maxwells in physics, and the Keplers and the Kelvins. All of the great scientists, the, the men of God who did their science for the glory of God. We need it in business. Yeah, what we need are the Luthers. <clears throat> we, need, we need some Luthers who will uh, vehemently and polemically write against these false doctrines by the purpose-driven Pope, Rick Warren. We need entrepreneurs who dream great dreams and, and make a lot of money for kingdom uses. Now, I'm not talking about dreaming great dreams. I'm not talking about changing doctrine. The Bible says in the book of... Oh, then why did you twist God's word in order to make this point of yours? Why is it that all of your purpose-driven hirelings and in their churches, they don't teach sound biblical doctrine? We review the sermons here on this program daily. Oh, yeah, you assure us you're not about changing doctrine, yet the doctrines are the very things that are being changed right in front of our eyes or as we're listening to it. We're hearing God's doctrines being changed as we listen to this sermon or to this lecture because you keep twisting God's word. You don't engage in sound biblical hermeneutics, sir. You completely treat the Bible like it's a wax nose or a piece of silly putty that can be basically made into any figure that you want it to. Jude, it's the truth once delivered for the saints. It's there. You don't change. To change it is heresy. But if you intend to be a leader, 
What you don't see is far more important than what you do see. Let me just tell you that after nearly 40 years of leading. What you don't see is far more important than what you do see. And we can only do the impossible if we see the invisible. Where does the Bible teach that? Isn't that false doctrine? Hmm? I don't know where the Bible teaches any of that. No, it is an overstatement. It is an exaggeration. You've heard people say, what the mind can conceive, the hand can achieve. That's just not true. But there's a kernel of truth in it. Einstein said this. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Because he said, what you imagine has no limit. Logic will get you from A to B, but imagination will take you everywhere. He also said that imagination, not knowledge, is the evidence of intelligence. It was Napoleon who said, imagination rules the world. And what we need today are people creating new innovations in a new society to reach new generations. The message must never change, but the methods have to change with every generation. No, what is no a- actually they don't, because the funny thing is, is that the methods are determined by God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the method. The methods didn't change for 2,000 years. And then all of a sudden, Rick Warren comes along with C. Peter Wagner and, and Robert Schuler. Now all of a sudden, the methods have to change? No, sir. The methods are actually part of the doctrine that can't change, sir. Feeding God's sheep, preaching the word. That doesn't get to change. I don't care about your imagination. Innovation, after all, it's simply asking the right questions. The only difference between an innovator and anybody else is innovators see what everybody else sees. They see what everybody else sees, but they ask questions that nobody else asks. What if? What for? Why not? They ask those questions. What if God, what could God do? You see, the biggest limitation to your ministry is your own imagination. God. Really, seriously. Biggest limitation to your ministry. Whose ministry? It's, it's not my ministry. It's the ministry of God's word. Oh, man. This is, I, I'm going to lose it. You cannot fulfill your dream if you don't have a dream. God cannot bless your vision if you haven't got his vision for your life. God can't help you reach a goal unless you've got a goal. A goal is a statement of faith. And the Bible says... So now we have a new legalism here. It's the legalism of dreaming and imagination. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible says, whoa, whoa, slow down, hold the horses. What what was that? Hang on a second, folks. Oh, man, this is a complete twisting of Hebrews 11.6. Hang on. You've got to hear this. Oh, my goodness. This is this is damnable. Listen, God, his vision for your life. God can't help you reach a goal unless you've got a goal. A goal is a statement of faith. And the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. A goal is a statement of faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Notice how he threw that in there. By the way, if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 11.6. Now, I'm going to read it in context because, again, this is a complete supreme twisting of God's word. Now, before I read the text, here's the question I have before you. If Rick Warren is teaching this properly, then we should expect to see in this text God saying you need to have 
the kind of faith where you have a big dream and a big vision for what you want to accomplish in your life. Because if you don't have a big enough dream or a big enough vision, well, then it's not possible for you to please me and I can't bless what you're doing. You have to have such a huge dream and huge vision that it's practically impossible for it to be accomplished because then I'll know you have enough faith and then that'll please me. That's how he's using Hebrews 11.6 in this context. But is Hebrews 11.6 talking about without faith, faith in, the, in, uh, in a big dream that it's impossible to please God, or saving faith in Christ? Yeah, let's read it in context. Here we go. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see, so he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken up. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, commend, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Is the kind of faith that's being talked about here in Hebrews eleven six the kind of faith that basically says you have to have a big, grand, big, almost impossible vision for your life, and God, you can't please God unless you have a big, impossible vision or dream for your life? Not at all. What Rick Warren had the audacity to do was to blatantly twist God's word and lie about it at the Desiring God conference. John Piper, we expect to hear from you. Uh, Albert Muller, it would be nice for you to uh, lead the intervention here with Brother Warren and call him to repentance of his Bible twisting. This is uh, absolutely unacceptable and inexcusable. Let's hear that again. Wow. I, I cannot believe what I'm hearing. Not his vision for your life. God can't help you reach a goal unless you've got a goal. A goal is a statement of faith. God can't help you reach a goal unless you've got a goal because a goal is a statement of faith. This is all word games here. And the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. This is false doctrine. Just plain and simple false doctrine. The Bible says, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. The Bible says that according to your faith, it will be done unto you. And when you set a goal, you're saying, God, I believe you want me to accomplish this by this such. Whatever is not a faith is sin is, in, is, is basically in the context. If you're doing, uh, if you're basically drinking or eating or whatever, and you're not, and you feel bad about it, you're not, you, you, then it's a sin. That's read the context of that. Unbelievable. A time. What I'm doing is I'm challenging you, I'm daring you, I'm begging you, dear brothers and sisters, dream great dreams for God. And teach your members to dream great dreams for God. It's not enough to just not believe everything we think. It's not enough to just guard our mind from the garbage. It's not enough to, to keep on learning. So when is it enough then? When will you know you've done enough? 
Because the law always demands but never tells you you've done enough. And, and, and developing character. We must also let God develop our imagination. And what is, why do we need to do this? Because we must outthink, we must outdream, and we must outsmart the world. Why do we do this? For the glory of God. We do it not for our benefit, but for the glory of God. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20, Now God be, glory be to God, who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of. Did you hear that? It says, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. I love this in the Living Bible. Let me read it again. Of course, he's reading, he's, he's, he's exegeting a paraphrase. Typical Rick Warren Bible-twisting move here. Now, glory be to God, who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty big dreamer. Nobody's ever accused me of small dreams. Like No, because you're always the ultimate example of whatever you're trying to tell people they need to do. We got it, okay? Yes, you've already received your reward, by the way, for this. The latest one was five years ago. Let's be the first church to go to every nation in the world. And we did it. And now our next dream is to plant a, a church in every major city in every one of those nations. You know, that's not, that's not big enough. I think you need to figure out how to preach the gospel to the little green men who live on Mars. You need to go intergalactic. I, I, I don't think God's going to be pleased with your dream because it's too small. And to finish the task of going to every unreached people group by the end of the decade. That's a big dream. I can dream some pretty big dreams. But God says, Warren, you think of the biggest thing that you can think of, and I can top that. I can outdo that. Infinitely beyond your highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes, may he be given glory in the church, glory forever and ever through endless age because of his master plan of salvation for the church through Jesus Christ. Now, I need to wrap this up. Some of you... Yeah, please, quickly. I'm about to burst into flames. You are naturally thinkers. And you love the world of thoughts and ideas. You really don't like people, but you love the world of thoughts and ideas. And your idea of ministry is stay in a study all week and then go through a vacuum tube out to the pulpit, preach, and then vacuum tube back. And that would be heaven for you. And you're, you're naturally great thinkers. God wired you that way. Some of you are naturally great doers. And you're figuring out how to do it. And you're winning people to Christ, and you're baptizing them in large numbers, and you're, you're planting churches and equipping servant leaders, and you're assisting the poor, and you're caring for the sick, and you're educating the next generation, and you're going out into the hurts and, and, and highways and byways of life and taking up the cross where people uh, least expect it, and you're a doer. Now, here's what I want to say to you, my friends. Those of you who are thinkers, you need to do more. Those of you who are doers, you need to think more. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Now, as we close in this conference on think, I want us to make a covenant together. You know, I'm a Baptist. Saddleback. 
remember what I told you in my uh, notes that uh, everything he does is uh, it always leads up to some kind of a commitment. Here it is. Here's the commitment. He he wants you to enter into a covenant with him. No way. I will not enter into a covenant with you, Rick Warren. You keep twisting God's word, and this entire teaching is spurious. Not only is it completely soaked in Pelagianism, the cross is practically non-existent, and what little you preached of it isn't about the forgiveness of sins. Christ doesn't factor into this at all, and this whole dream thing that you concocted, it's not even in the text. You completely mangle Hebrews 11.6 and Proverbs 29.18 to come up with this weird, bizarre doctrine. You're the one who said earlier in this little sermon thing that you're doing that if it's new, it's untrue. Yeah, all of this is new. I should reject it as untrue. The church is built on four covenants, on membership covenant, maturity covenant, ministry covenant, mission covenant. Most people couldn't join Saddleback because they wouldn't be willing to keep the covenants. And, and most people don't know we do church discipline if you don't keep the covenants. But I want us to have a covenant together. And it's a covenant for the mind, a mental covenant. And I want to, to remember these five things that are important to do. And so just write on your outline there, T-H-I-N-K. Here's a little acrostic to remember these five things that we must teach. No, no, no. His biblical hermeneutic method forms an acrostic. T-W-I-S-T. Twist. Yeah, if you're not sure what those all stand for, if look on my Facebook page or go to letterofmark.us, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S. I've got it posted there. Teach our members, and we must live in our own lives. T stands for test every thought. Test. I've, I've done it, and I've tested all your thoughts here, and they come up completely wanting when it comes to what the biblical text actually says. Therefore, I can reject it. Every thought. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to, sh- to search and to test your thoughts. Don't believe everything you think. Test every thought. The H stands for helmet your head. Helmet your head. Put on the helmet of salvation. You know, in California, you can't ride a motorcycle without wearing a helmet. Now, they, you, you, need, you don't have to wear elbow pads. You don't have to wear knee pads, but you do have to wear a helmet. Why? Because if you get your head hurt, you're in serious, deep kimchi. And the Bible says, put on the helmet of salvation. Why? Because until you're saved, you don't have any, any uh, protection against the fiery darts of the devil that he puts in your mind. The Bible, by the way, the word for changing your mind, it's repentance. Some people think repentance means to change what you do. There's not a single lexicon, Greek lexicon, that says repentance. It's changing what you do. It's changing the way you think. Metanoia, it is a mental shift. And boy, could we get into that. But put on the helmet of salvation. I, in think, stands for imagine great thoughts. Imagine great thoughts. Think about all of the great promises of God. Everything is possible to him who believes. What an amazing blank check that is. 
Imagine Great Thoughts. N stands for Nourish a Godly Life. Nourish a Godly Mind. Make sure that you're growing, that you're developing. Uh, Psalm 119.15, I will study your commandments and reflect on your way. Study and reflect. And the K stands for keep on learning. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Are your members seeing your progress? Are your sermons more powerful, more meaty, more deep, more strong, more practical, more touching lives? If it doesn't touch you, it's not going to touch them. You've got to look at your messages and say, what is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the word that they're learning in this sermon? What is the perspective I'm teaching them in this sermon? What is the convictions? What are the convictions I want to get across? What are the character I want them to develop? What are the character qualities? And what are the skills? Because the Bible says that the Christian life is not just knowing, it's being and it's doing. Let's bow for prayer. I want to pray for you. Nope. Done. Wow. Um, uh, so he, he, <clears throat> let me kind of summarize where we're at at the moment. We're done listening to Rick Warren. This is not biblical Christianity, and this is if this is Pelagianism and Bible twisting on parade. And this is what John Piper invited to be taught at the Desiring God conference. Now I've I've heard them saying we got to treat you know we're sick and tired of the criticism against Rick Warren and you know cuz he is a brother after all. Fine. It's time for an intervention. And John Piper and Al Muller and those guys need to be the ones heading up and spearheading the intervention. And the intervention needs to go something along these lines. Rick Warren needs to be brought into a room with John Piper, Al Mohler. I would even say let's get Mike Horton, maybe Dr. Rosenblatt in the room, Kim Riddlebarger, and a few others. Uh, you know, R.C. Sproul, maybe J.I. Packer. You know, get them all in a room, and this is how the intervention goes. Brother Rick, we love you too much to let you continue doing this. Uh, we're having an intervention. You need to get help. You are a, a habitual Bible twister and a Pelagian. You need to repent of these false practices, methods, and false doctrine and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And you, in fact, what we probably need to do is get you in some kind of a, of a theological therapy program. You know, I can think of it as uh, celebrate recovery for heretics. And uh, and until uh, until we until you've gone through our theological celebrate recovery program and have demonstrated that you are capable of correctly handling by God's word, uh, we need you need to uh, agree and have a covenant with us that you're not going to preach, that you're not going to write a book, that you're not going to appear at a conference, that you're not going to do anything. Because, Brother Warren, this is an intervention. We can't let you keep going this way because what's at stake is your soul and the souls of those who are being influenced by your false doctrine. 
I mean, I I am absolutely dumbfounded. I, I just my jaw is on the floor. Cannot believe how bad what the what I've heard was. What the, 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 this is horrible. Where is the outrage on the part of Mueller? Where is the outrage on the part of John MacArthur? Where is the outrage on the part of of John Piper regarding this false teaching that was taught during the Desiring God conference? Yeah, we need to hear from these godly men, and they need to set the example of a godly rebuke against a man who they say is our Christian brother, but who is obviously bought into complete horrible hermeneutics and Bible twisting. And they, I, not only that, I hope that the Desiring God Conference issues a formal apology to its constituents apologizing for the false doctrine taught by Rick Warren in the speech. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Anyway, it, yeah, we're at the end of this. It, it, I don't know what else to say. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you'd like to support what we do here, you could do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You know the shtick. There's two buttons. Pick one. Fill out the form. We really, truly need your financial help as we continue to boldly proclaim the truth and call false teachers to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because you know what? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ even died for Brick Warren's Bible twisting that we heard in this lecture. And even Jesus Christ can and will forgive Rick Warren. And we need to call him to repentance and that and pray that he would bear fruit in keeping with that repentance and stop teaching this nonsense and stop twisting God's word this way. The good news, Christ can and will forgive him. It, you know, that, that, that's, that's the good news. Christ even died for this, these, the sins that were committed in this lecture. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can follow me on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. I'm going to go take a cold shower. This is ridiculous. 